namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa aparutang vesang hapasasa tawara e sodavanta bamunjantu satang So this afternoon, I will expound the Dhamma on this auspicious day of Magapuja. It's a beautiful sunny day here in England. And so Magapuja is is one of the important Buddhist festival days when 1,250 arahants assembled to pay respect to the Lord Buddha. They assembled spontaneously. They didn't have internet, iPhones, or any way of contacting each other. So this is the legend in the scriptures of the importance of Magapuja. So notice that this is quite an impressive number of arahants because the word arahant is a word that we learn in life and we see it as some great attainment, something very high and rare. At least this is how I developed my mind around this word arahant. So in living in Thailand for many years, people talk about arahants, but nobody, you know, it's, nobody claims to be one. And so you wonder what, the, what does it really mean? So this is a way of investigating how we hold words that we learn in religious traditions Because if I ask anybody, are you an Arhan, they, they look embarrassed or say no. But at that time of uh, the Buddha, according to the scriptures, there was 1,250 assembled spontaneously. So notice the limitation of language, how language is puts things in hierarchical structures like arahant is at the top and and uh, ignorant person is at the bottom so ignorance is is you know we look at other people and they're just caught in the worldly dhammas greed hatred and delusion they're ignorant arahants are above the world and so we have this this sense of those are are lower and those are higher than what is higher. And this is what how language is structured, whatever language it may be, whether it's English or Thai 
or whatever, because language itself is a learned acquisition. We're not born speaking any language whatsoever. So the Buddha's reference to mindfulness and reflection, getting to the source beyond the words themselves, is, is one of the most inspiring teachings that impressed me in my years as a bhikkhu, because the Buddha encouraged this kind of investigation. It's not a, you know, the Buddha's teaching is not about belief, and you accept a whole lot of Buddhist beliefs, even though that happens, and that has certain positive qualities to believe in Buddhism and so forth, is not to be denied or to be put down. But the actual essence of Buddhist teaching is about investigation. So it's like the Buddha encouraged this, this ability that human beings have, that we all have, to investigate our experience as we, as we experience it in the here and now. Not to just believe a lot of Buddhist teachings blindly, but to investigate. So the first sermon of the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths, is about investigation. So the first noble truth being uh, suffering, dukkha, you know, it's not, one doesn't, not asking us to believe in dukkha as some kind of noble truth, but it's to be understood. That means to investigate and not just to find a definition in an English dictionary or a poly dictionary for the word suffering or dukkha. We can spend waste our lives trying to find the, the perfect expression, the perfect definition of dukkha or suffering, and we wouldn't be any the wiser. So it's, it's, it's a directional sign pointing, where, you know, the direction we must look, and that is, of course, at ourselves. We go inward instead of letting the world draw our attention out through the senses that we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, our feelings and so forth of pleasure and pain and whatnot are, draw us always out to phenomena that are happening that we're encountering in the here and now. So the ignorant human being is one who is just continually drawn out through the senses, seeking happiness, seeking relief from pain, seeking relief from loneliness, from fear and anger and, and uh, resentment and emotional states that every human being experiences in their lives by trying to find some remedy by seeking it in, through psychology or through pharmacy, through science. You know, people try their best to, to develop drugs and, and uh, that make us feel happy all the time. But even with the best effects of drugs, it, it, it has no permanent quality. When, when the effect of the drug is worn off, we're back at stage one.
looking for happiness, trying to escape suffering, loneliness, boredom, fear. So the insight is to understand suffering, and that that really means to investigate it, to look, to understand something. You have to accept what it is. Yeah, you know, you can't just try to stop suffering. You can, you know, distract yourself from momentary suffering, but seeking some kind of sensual object or distraction that that makes you forget the loneliness or fear or self-consciousness or anger, resentment. The world around us, the sensual realm that we're experiencing through these bodies is impermanent. You know, so it's always changing. People trying to find permanent solutions through intellectual theories, through ideas, through philosophy, through science, desperately looking for the perfect solution to the human condition. You know, so in in my own lifetime, just uh, the the experiments people, populations of people have made, like with communism or, uh, you know, raising democracy as some kind of uh, political theory that will bring happiness to everybody, or political solution, some kind of marvelous idea where everything is fair, everything's right, everything is perfect, where there's perfect freedom, equality, or the best that you can possibly think. But the the Buddha pointed to here and now, Santitiko Dhamma, the way things are. At this moment, at this very moment, you're listening to me expound and you're feeling a certain way, you know. You, you don't choose to feel what you're feeling, but you can be aware of it. It is the way it is. So this is learning to use wisdom with, with the sensory wor- sens- sentient world that we're experiencing. Otherwise, we're just lost in habits, habitual patterns of thinking and reacting to life as most most of you have probably experienced in monastic life, how easy it is to just become aware of habitual reactions to things that you, happened to you when you were a child. Self-consciousness, fear of what others think, fear of being wrong, fear of making a mistake, fear of going to hell. And then the desires like gamma dhanha, desire for sensual pleasures. You know, we try to see that as some kind of personal identity that we've got to control and manipulate. Bhava dhanha is is wanting to become something that we feel we aren't. So when you think of yourself as an ignorant person who's unenlightened, then wanting to become an arahant. It's a noble desire. Bhavadana is not like, usually we desire to become better or enlightened or 
great or famous or something that, that we feel we aren't at this moment. So in meditation, there's a lot of bhavadana, wanting to get samadhi, wanting to get jhanas, wanting to find nibbana. And this, these are three kind of desires. Vipavadana is trying to get rid of fear, loneliness, boredom trying to control the mind to, to resist negative mental states, to, get, to deny rep, uh, repression or depression that we're experiencing or doubt. And this is, I found this reflection on the three types of desire, the cause of suffering. Is it, can you get rid of desire just through trying to control it, just obeying all the rules of the Vinaya and trying to, to deny uh, gamma, sensual desire? Or is it to be understood? You know, so in, in, this is where the Buddha gives us this, this freedom to investigate the very things that we're experiencing in this form human form, male, female, whatever form it is, this uh, Buddha ability. Some people call it Buddha nature, or the, the ability to reflect on the way it is with wisdom, not with opinions and views of right and wrong, good and bad. So the thinking mind is about right and wrong, good and bad. So, you know, if you, you know, when you attach to thought, logic, and reason, you, you end up never being quite sure where you're at because you're attaching to maybe very fine, magnificent ideas, ideals that, you know, are in themselves beautiful and perfect. But that's not the way it is now. It's not like that now. It's not, we don't see perfection now. We see ourselves in terms of I am this physical body. with a strong identity with our parents. And this is the main delusion that humanity suffers from, why so many of the problems are unsolvable or hopeless because in in all societies everywhere in the world the whole tendency is to identify with the forms that we're experiencing rather than identifying with the consciousness that is aware of forms it was very interesting to to uh, in Buddha, Theravada Buddhist teachings the six elements Consciousness is the first one, then space, then earth, then fire, water, air. So without consciousness, there's no space. And without space, there's no earth, fire, water, and air. There's no time. Because forms need space to manifest. Like if we need space in this temple, a lot of space. We're very aware of space now in this COVID pandemic. Not to be too close to each other. 
not to intrude on each other's spaces. Sometimes I hear people talking, don't come into my space. But space is an element that, that depends on consciousness. You can perceive space. You can, you know, just by looking here in, the, in this uh, temple, there's a lot of space between the monks. You know, so we're very much aware of space and distance and social relationships and so forth to, to define space or to notice it. Because the forms can't manifest. Earth, fire, water, and air have no way of manifesting if there is no space. You can perceive earth, fire, water, and air elements. That's, these are the changing forms uh, that, we, that we, we identify with. The, the earth element, the body, is a very strong identity. Fire, the fire element, air element, water element that make up the forms, the planetary forms, universal forms in space. But space can't be aware of anything. It's just a, a, another condition allowing time to manifest. So the forms that we're actually living under and identify with are manifestations in space. The forms couldn't exist without space, and space couldn't exist without consciousness. So we get back to consciousness, and then the Buddha's emphasis on mindfulness. So when I introduced this Dhamma reflection, I was pointing out, you know, the, one of the sayings in the scriptures is aparuta desang amatasa tawa, which translates, the gates to the deathless are open. Now that really impressed me early in my, when I encountered Buddhism, even before I was ordained. It's a kind of like an announcement, a proclamation that, that kind of gave me great hope. Personally, a lot of hope that there's a way out of this trap of just the boredom of one's own thinking patterns, emotional habits. As I grew older, I began to see so much of my emotions were very immature, you know, judging them in terms of my age and they're like repetitions from childhood and so forth. And so I could, you know, wonder if we could ever grow up and get free of these emotions. Or in, in the American culture, they talk about normality. They said, we're trying to be normal. And then I tried to figure out what normality was. Am I normal or am I abnormal or who is normal and who isn't, you know, then you're thinking endlessly about normality. is another word, an idea. But what's normal? What is ordinary? What is reality is consciousness here and now. And that we all share. It's not personal. 
Consciousness, we can't, if we start owning it, like saying, my consciousness, Ajahn Sumedho consciousness, that's, that's creating ownership with words, with a sense of personal ownership of consciousness. But if I stop doing that, if I let go of thinking, let go of words, concepts, memories, there's still consciousness. And it doesn't say anything. It's non-judgmental, it's peaceful. And it has no boundary. And you can't perceive it through the senses. You can't perceive consciousness. It's not an object. It's not a condition that, that arises and ceases. So consciousness is invisible, it's endless, it has no, no boundary, it's universal. And that's what we really are when we let go of our blindness to continually identify with the conditions of the body and mental states that we inherit in our lives through our karma, through our conditioning. So when you wonder who you really are, because there's, you know, people are trying to find themselves as something, to define themselves in a certain way, to know, you know, like gender identity is a strong identity, or LGBTQ identities, different sexual orientations are strong identities, racial identities. You know, and so it's trying to find out, am I really British or American or Thai or what is my real identity as a, a is it a, a nationalist identity? But those are all given identities. You're not born American or British. A newborn baby is has a human form and it's conscious. So from the very beginning, you know, we, we, when at birth, the birth of our physical bodies, consciousness is still absolutely pure. Consciousness is, doesn't have any stain, anything wrong with it, it's perfect. So when we look for perfection in conditions, we're going to be always disappointed because they're, they're not perfect. All conditions are impermanent. So this is the Buddhist teaching, straightforward, very direct. All conditions are impermanent. So if you want to identify with a condition, then you're going to suffer from it. Whether you're at the, you know, the best or the worst, you know, you're a totally successful human being or a total failure or anything in between, it doesn't matter, does it? It's on the condition level. Conditions arise and cease and change and, and they're to be understood, investigated, recognized that all conditions are impermanent. And what isn't permanent, you can't find. You can't 
perceive it. You can't objectify consciousness because that's what you are. It's like trying to see your own eyes. You know, you, you can't see your own eyes even though your eyes can see me. You can't find consciousness as an object that you can identify with, but it's consciousness knowing itself, awareness, aware of awareness, consciousness aware of consciousness. So that is the way things are. This is not made up, you know, uh, just Buddhist philosophy or my personal take on it. This is having investigated these teachings, using these teachings of the Buddha as they are recorded in the Pali scriptures. And then, then this, the, the Bariyati Dhamma, the study of the scriptures, is, is just the beginning. The real practice is Bhatibhata, or meditation practice. That's investigating. It's not about getting samadhi, or jhanas, or psychic powers, or anything else. You know, they're very clear. The Four Noble Truths are not kind of esoteric, problematic teachings that you believe or don't believe in. They're very practical and, and tell you directly what to do, how to understand, how to let go of sankharas, how to realize the emptiness, consciousness, consciousness aware of itself that is non-personal. So all the personal difficulties that we find living in monastic communities or in lay life, it does, you know, there's always conflict because on the personal level we're all different. You know, we don't always think the same or believe in the same things or interpret Buddhism in the same way or, you know, so because these are conditions that, that you know, that arise in consciousness. And then we identify with these conditions that have no real essence, no permanent quality, no core, no heart, no sustaining quality. They just, their nature is changed. So no matter how clever we might be in analyzing and figuring out intellectually through reason and logic how things should be, The real practice is opening to the way it is. It's like this. Dhamma is here and now. It's not something you have to find. It's what you are. And so it stops the thinking mind. The thinking mind can't, can't get beyond itself there. It goes into doubt or emptiness where there's no more thought. And that's, that's, that's where there's just empty awareness. Not of anything in particular, but this open attention, attentiveness to the present moment is like this. And if you trust that, that's the gate to the deathless.
that's the way out of suffering. So it isn't about just learning to, to adapt to suffering and make the best of it and live your life in a kind of resigned way. That's not what the Buddha intended. And one of my favorite teachings, which I hear you chant at evening, morning and evening pujas, is there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. And if there wasn't the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, there would be no escape from the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned. And that really it intrigued me. I read that before I even met Lumpur Cha. There's a, one teaching that really intrigued me the most was that it's in the Nibbana Sutta. What is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned? What is it? You know, trying to define the unborn. You can imagine the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. Try to get an image of it. You know, imagine you can say, well, you know, you can uh, say some kind of metaphysical reality. You can philosophize about it. But it's here and now because there's no, if there wasn't, the here and now freedom, there'd be no escape from, we'd be just caught in our karmic habits, tendencies, our identity with our physical body, with the aging process, with our position in the Sangha, with our feeling of self-consciousness or worry about the future, with our guilt and remorse about things we we remember from the past, we'd be stuck in that kind of uh, turmoil till we die. Because those are the habits we've acquired, and they're all conditioned, so there is an escape from them through what? The unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. And it stops the mind. Try to imagine the unborn. And your, your thinking mind stops because you can't do it. The uncreated is what? And you, you know, the thinking mind stops very suddenly. You notice that. You can't imagine the uncreated the unborn, the unformed, unconditioned. You can imagine anything on the born, the created, the form, the conditioned. That's what imagination is. Good, bad, great, small, whatever the qualities, because these can be perceived, earth, fire, water, and air, perceived through the senses, the senses themselves, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mental states, the mental habits, they're all created, formed, conditioned. So that's why this kind of hopelessness in modern life, in modern affluent societies, there's a kind of depression, a problem with depression and fear because with, as we get what we want, even in the material realm, we're stuck with, what's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of it? You know, just to get a new car or new clothes or a better house or 
you know, is, is that the purpose of our existence, is just to, to try to improve the condition realm? Then there's all kinds of ominous signs of climate change and, and epidemics and, you know, the Armageddon, the end of the world, meteorites crashing into planet Earth, uh, and, and they all kind of imagine dangers in the future. So the future is, you know, can, when we imagine the future, we can create a lot of fear, like with old age. What happens when you die? If all my identity, my reality is about conditioned phenomena, you can't imagine what happens after death. You, you know, you go to various teachers or read various books about life after death, there's no life after death, it's just oblivion, or you get the Christian view or the Muslim view the Jewish view of, the Buddhist view of reincarnation. But the reality of here now, we don't know what happens after death. Because we're experiencing the formed world that is constantly dying in the here and now, but we don't pay attention to its absence, to the absence of form. So, you know, we're always seeking rebirth in this life with new thoughts, new ideas, new, new traveling, uh, you know, going traveling on holidays, vacations, seeking happiness or distraction or excitement, romance, adventure, through going outward to the sensory world, which is inevitably going to be disappointing because it, its, its nature is to do that. It can't, even at a peak moment of a conditioned experience where it's, life is at its very best, everything is what you want and you're perfectly excited and pleased with it, it's not going to stay that way. Because the nature of all sankharas is change. And that implies, just like your inhalation, you can only inhale so far and you have to exhale. Youth lasts so long and then old age starts happening. The aging process of the human form that we ignorantly identify with. So encouraging you to, if you want an identity, then don't settle for some kind of petty identity like your nationality, your religion, your social position, your, what your appearance is, whether you're beautiful or not, or male or female. Don't, don't seek these identities as as something to hold on to, but let go of all identification. And what is left when you've let go of everything? Let go of all the three forms of desire is awareness, consciousness, it's pure, it's peaceful, It's ordinary, it's not fan absolutely fantastic. It's not like getting high on drugs or anything like that. So if you're looking for a high, 
you know, enlightenment is where you're going to be permanently blissed out forever, that's an imagination. That's an image you created. Lung Po Chao, you know, when I was learning Thai in the early years at Wat Pa Pong, he's always using the word Tamada, which in Thai means ordinary. It's the word Dhamma, Tamada, ordinary. It's here and now. It's not remote or, or separate from us. It's not something you have to get and find or look at or hear or smell, taste, touch or define. Do you need to define consciousness when that's what you are? It's like this. So you awaken to what you really are and let go of the beliefs that you have about yourself. These words like stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, arahant, they're to be helpful means, not identities that we hold to. They're not just clinging to identities with words like these. They're, they're helpful recognitions of the change. Stream entry is where you have that initial insight into the path, the here and now, the reality of here and now, of consciousness here and now, non-attachment. And then the rest, you know, the, uh, that's the initial, that's a breakthrough into you have an insight, a real understanding the path is like this. And it's not just intellectualized or quoting from scriptures or some other teacher, but it's it's budget tang me ti anyway to be experienced individually. You have to know it for yourself. But then we still have our habits. You know, we still have our our karmic conditions to deal with the way we are as a personality, our, our uh, cultural, social conditioning, our thinking habits. So the first three fetters of the ten fetters that, that stop, that blind us to the ultimate realization of our hardship, where it's complete freedom from identity with phenomena, with conditions, with sankharas. is you're aware that suddenly you know this, you know this path. It's not, not just, you know, you stop thinking about it. When you start thinking, am I a sotapanna, then you'll get caught in doubt again. So you don't become a sotapanna, you, you realize the path. Because a personality can't become a sotapanna, a sakatakami, anakami, or arahan. Sakyaditi is the first fetter, and that's identity with the body. The ego, the sense of yourself as a separate 
conscious entity in the, in the vast universe. So your personality can never become anything other than, you know, you can become friendlier or happier or more positive. You can change, you know, through various techniques, you know, change your personality. Or your cultural conditioning. Like here at Amravati, they come from different cultural backgrounds, generational backgrounds. So, you know, how could we live together if we each followed our own particular cultural conditioning, you know, and our own views about Buddha Dhamma, personal views about Buddha Dhamma? You know, how could a community stay together and exist for very long just based on ideals of how things should be. We can't, you know, so the Buddha established the Vinaya as a way of, of agreement about action and speech. So we all agree to live within that limitation of the of Vinaya rules as handed down to us through generations. But it's not an identity, it's not to identify with it. It's a skillful means, a way of reflecting, giving limitation to action and speech, just to observe, to be aware of the desire, you know, you can be aware of desire. You're not just a helpless slave in bondage to your desires. You can, that which is aware of desire is like this. Aware of sexual desires like this. Aware of anger is like this. And that awareness isn't angry or sexual. That's pure conscious awareness that we all share. So in ultimate reality, everything's perfect. It's, we just learn to, to let go of the way we've been conditioned by society, by culture, our own personal inheritance, our genetic conditioning through our parents and through our background. We see through that, that's not our identity anymore. It is what it is, so it rises, see some of it's good, some of it's not very good, but it is sape, sankaranicca, all conditions are impermanent. Then after the gates to the deathless are open, aparuta desang amatasa taura, amatasa taura, the gate to the deathless, what is the deathless? You know, what What does it mean, the gate to the deathless? What is deathlessness? Because conditions are all about death. They begin and end. Condition phenomena, our eyes, our ears, that's all subject to change. Like my vision is getting really funny. You're all hazy right now, and I look at you. <laughs> I can barely make out who's who. I see Ajahn Hiramatra, Ajahn Aryasilo, but beyond that, you're just hazy figures. So can I depend on vision 
is my refuge or hearing. I have to wear these hearing aids because the senses are, you know, earth, fire, water, air conditions. They arise and cease, born and die. So if I identify with my senses, uh, you know, I could be suffering a lot now. I'm growing old, senses not so sharp, not so good, having to wear artificial means to see properly and hear properly. You know, I could see that as kind of some kind of form of suffering. But I don't. It's just the way it is. Old age is like this. When you, you know, I'm living in this community now, so you can observe old age. Ajahn Sumedho is 86, 87 in July. The old physical form is like this. You know, I can't walk very well, so I have to depend on Ajahn Soko or a walking stick or furniture in the room. But the gate to the deathless is open. So that's a proclamation the Buddha made. And he wasn't joking. He wasn't, you know, just trying to say something inspiring. But it's to be reflected upon. And then the second line to that is, Ye soda wantaba muntan tutsatang. Ye soda wantaba, those that are listening, trust in this awareness. It's the only possibility for escape from the conditioned realm. So it's the gate to the deathless, to realize for yourself, deathless, the deathless reality that is our true nature, and begin to let go of what we think we are and believe and, and are conditioned to uh, believe in and trust in various rules and laws and cultural conditioning, racial biases, gender biases, religious biases, they're all conditioned into us. They're not Dhamma in the sense of they're not the Dhamma, they're, they arise and cease in consciousness. So all these conditions, you know, they're not, they, they are Dhammas because they arise and cease but what doesn't arise and cease is Dhamma. It's immutable, unchangeable, perfect. And when we take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, that's what it means. It's not just ceremonial habits of Theravada Buddhism. Bhutang Sarnangachami, Dhammang Sarnangachami, Sankang Sarnangachami. This is a tradition and they become another form of habit. But they're much more profound than that. Buddha Dhamma Sangha is here and now. It's not taking refuge in abstract ideas of Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So, Yesoda Manta, those who can hear are listening, open to this. What I'm saying at this time is to, I don't expect you to or want you to believe what I'm saying, but to investigate. I'm empowering you, encouraging you to trust yourself to really investigate, not in terms of right and wrong, good or bad, but in terms of wisdom, 
all conditions are impermanent, all Dhamma is not self. So I offer this as a reflection for today.